So, uh, the Samanyapala Sutta. Um, there's versions of it on uh, suttacentral.net, and there's a version of it at Access to Insight. Okay? So, uh, King Bimbasara went to see the Buddha, inquired as to who he was and what he was up to, found out he was seeking awakening, but offered him a ministerial position in the kingdom of Magadha. But the Buddha wasn't interested in politics. He wanted to wake up. He politely declined, but King Bimbasara uh, asked him, if you find out how to wake up, come back and tell me about it. And sure enough, three years after his awakening, the Buddha returned to Rajagaha, gave a discourse to King Bimbasara, and King Bimbasara attained the fruit of stream entry, the first level of awakening, and became a, a, a very dedicated supporter of the Buddha. But King Bimbasara had a son, Prince Ajitasattu, who was very ambitious. He grew tired of waiting for his father to die and decided to take matters into his own hands. He went sneaking into his father's private quarters with a dagger strapped to his thigh and was at, promptly apprehended by the guards who hauled him up before the king and they said, Great king, we found your son sneaking into your private quarters and he had this dagger strapped to his thigh. Son, why were you sneaking into my private quarters with a dagger strapped to your thigh? I was going to kill you, dad. Why do you want to kill me? I want your kingdom. Why didn't you just say so? Here, you can be king. King Bambasaro is quite happy to turn the kingdom over to his son because that meant he could go actually practice meditation. So King Ajitasattu got to be king without having to kill his father, but he grew worried that his father was going to get bored with that meditation stuff and want his kingdom back. So he ordered his father thrown in the dungeon didn't quite have heart to order him killed, he just cut off all his food. He did allow one visitor, the queen. The queen was very shrewd. Before she would go see her husband, she would smear her body with honey, and the king could live by licking it off. <laughs> when King Bimbasara wasn't dying, King Ajitasattu went to see him. Dad, how come you're not dead yet? Oh, when your mother comes to visit, she smears her body with honey, and I can live by licking it off end of visits from the queen. But still, King Bimbasara wasn't dying fast enough, so King Ajitasattu had him tortured, and during the torturing, he died. Now, the commentaries tell us that two messages arrived simultaneously at the palace. The first message was that a son had been born to King Ajitasattu's queen. And for the first time, he understood the love of a father for his son. And he said to his men, release my father from prison. And then they gave him the other message, which was that his father was dead. From that night on, King, King Ajitasattu had terrible nightmares. He would no sooner fall asleep than he would wake up screaming. And the servants would rush in, great king, great king, are you all right? And he would say, fine, fine, go away, go away. And he'd fall back asleep, have another nightmare, wake up screaming. So he developed insomnia. And now on the night of the full moon, uh, if the king can't sleep, nobody gets to sleep. And so uh, Jivaka, who had given the mango grove to the Buddha and who was the royal physician, and all the members of the court were sitting up there with the king when he uttered his joyful exclamation about wanting to go visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to his mind. And immediately, one of the ministers piped up and said, there's Peruna Kasapa. He's long gone forth. He has many followers. He's esteemed as holy. He's in the last phase of his life. You should visit him. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. The king said nothing. Another minister pipes up. This Makali Gosala, he's long gone forth. He has many followers. Okay, you get the idea. Each minister promoting his recluse or Brahmin and the king saying nothing. When the hubbub finally died down, King Ajitasattu turns to Jivaka. Jivaka, do you know any recluse or Brahmin we could visit that might bring some peace to my mind? Great king, 
the Buddha, the fully awakened one, is living in my mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks. The Buddha teaches a Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. You should visit the Buddha. He might be able to bring some peace to your mind. Prepare the elephant vehicles, Jivaka. So Jivaka goes running down from the upper terrace of the palace to the stables down below. And he has 500 female elephants saddled up, along with the king's royal bull elephant. And then he goes running back up to the upper terrace of the palace and says, The elephant vehicles are prepared, great king. Do as you see fit. So the king had 500 women of the court seated one each on the 500 female elephants. And then the king and Jivaka mounted up on the royal tusker. And they went riding forth in full royal splendor with torchbearers going before. It must have been quite a sight on that full moon night. They rode out of the palace and through the city of New Rajagaha. And then through the old city, out through the city gates, hung a left and headed towards the mango grove. And when they got near the mango grove, it was quiet. It was a little too quiet. Jivaka, are you betraying me? Are you turning me over to my enemies? No, great king. Why would you think that? You said there's 1,250 people in this mango grove. I don't hear a sound. They're probably all meditating, great king. Look, look, you can see lights in the pavilion hall. Go forward, great king, go forward. So they went as far as they could go on the elephants, and then they dismounted the king and Jivaka and all the women of the court, and they went up to the pavilion hall. King is looking around. Now, which one's the Buddha? He's the one sitting at the back facing everyone else. The king was quite impressed. You know, he was checking the place out. He eventually wandered up not too far from the Buddha. And he said, oh, if only my son, the prince, could enjoy peace such as this. The Buddha overheard him and said, great king, do your thoughts follow your affection? Indeed, they do, venerable sir. I love my son, the prince, very much. And it would be wonderful if he could experience peace such as the company of bhikkhus. And then the king saluted the Buddha, he saluted the monks, and he sat down to one side. Sitting there, he said, Venerable sir, may I ask you a question? Certainly, great king, ask whatever you wish. Venerable sir, in my kingdom, there are people who practice many different crafts. There are elephant trainers, horse trainers, there are archers, there are swordsmen, spearmen, camp marshals, commandos, chain mail warriors. There are weavers, tailors, bakers. There are artisans of so many sorts. There are garland makers, there are street sweepers, barbers, accountants, statisticians. All of these practice their craft and it's possible to see here and now some result of their labor. Venerable sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life that's visible here and now? Great king, have you ever asked this question of other any recluse or Brahmin? Well, yes, actually I have, venerable sir. I've asked a half a dozen other recluses and Brahmins about this matter, but they just preached their doctrine at me. They never got around to answering the question. It was like asking for a mango and being given a breadfruit. It was most unsatisfying. Um, so I ask you again, Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great King. I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom, in your palace, there's a workman, a slave, who arises before you each morning, sees that all of your needs are met, waits on you hand and foot, doesn't go to bed till after you go to bed. Suppose this slave were to think, 
It is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds. For this king Adityasattu is a man, and I am a man. And yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god, while I wait on him hand and foot from morning to night. Perhaps I should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some point the slave were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and go forth from the home life to the homeless life. Upon learning of this, would you send your soldiers, make that man come back here and be my slave? Oh, no, venerable sir, we would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? It is, Venerable Sir. Venerable Sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great King. Suppose in the, your kingdom there's a farmer who toils in his fields from morning to night. And then when it's harvest time, he winds up paying a large portion of his harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Great King, suppose this farmer were to grow weary of paying taxes. Suppose he were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds for this king Ajitasattu is a man and I am a man. And yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god. While I toil in my fields from morning to night and then at harvest time, the king winds up collecting a large portion of my harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Perhaps I should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some point this farmer were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and go forth from home life to homeless life. Upon learning of this, would you send your soldiers saying, make that man come back and be a farmer so he can support the treasury? Oh no, venerable sir, we would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not also a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, yes it is, venerable sir. Venerable sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now, but more wondrous and more sublime than these? Listen, great king, and pay attention. A Tathagata arises in this world, a fully awakened Buddha, who teaches the Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. A householder or a householder's child or some other person hears the Dhamma and gains faith in the Tathagata. And later thinks, household life is crowded and dusty. Going forth is free like the air. And then this householder or a householder's child or some other person shaves off hair and beard puts on the ochre robe and goes forth from the home life to the homeless life. Great king, upon joining the Tathagata's order, one lives restrained by the precepts, the rules of behavior. There are many of these rules. The first one is, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. The second rule is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. The third rule is that we are celibate. We also tell the truth. We don't use harsh or abusive speech. We try to be peacemakers rather than create division. We don't engage in gossip or idle chatter. We don't trample plants or seeds. We eat only in one part of the day. We don't go to singing or dancing shows. We don't adorn ourselves with garlands or perfumes. We don't sleep on high or luxurious beds. We don't handle gold or silver. We don't do anything that causes harm to anyone else. There are many rules, great king. By living restrained by these precepts, 
It makes it possible to live with our senses guarded. Upon seeing a sight with the eye, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as covetousness or grief overcome one. When hearing a sound with the ear, smelling a smell with the nose, tasting a taste with the tongue, touching a texture with the body, thinking a thought with the mind, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as covetousness or grief overcome one. With senses restrained, it makes it possible to be mindful of all that we do. Mindful when going forward, mindful when coming back. Mindful when looking forward and looking back. Mindful when getting up, getting dressed, going on alms round. Mindful when eating, chewing, savoring, and swallowing. Mindful when going to the toilet. Mindful when speaking and keeping silent. Mindful when waking up and falling asleep. Great King, we're also content with little. All we need is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if we're ill. This leaves us free to go wherever we wish, like a bird on the wing. Great King, with these noble precepts, this noble guarding of the senses, this noble mindfulness, and this noble contentment, it makes it possible to do the work of a recluse. Having returned from alms round and eaten the midday meal, one resorts to a secluded dwelling, to the root of a tree, to the forest, to a hillside cave, to a charnel ground, to a heap of straw, to the open air. One sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Great King, when practicing meditation, there are five states of mind that might arise to hinder progress on the spiritual path. The first of these is the desire for sensual pleasures. Great King, since desire is like, it's like being in debt. When someone is in debt, they must continually work to pay off the debt. But if someone were in debt and were to manage to pay off the debt, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome sensual desire, one rejoices and becomes glad. The second of these hindrances is ill will and hatred. Ill will and hatred is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well. You can't think straight. You're hot. You can't do what you want to do. If you're overcome with ill will and hatred... <laughs> You don't feel well, you can't think straight, you're hot, you can't do what you want to do. But if someone were physically ill and were to take medicine and overcome that illness, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one were to overcome ill will and hatred, one would rejoice and become glad. The third of these hindrances is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like being in prison. If you're in prison, you just sit there. You can't do anything. You miss out on all the good things of life. It's the same with sloth and torpor. You sit down to meditate and yeah, you miss out on all the good things of the spiritual life because you're falling asleep or being lazy. But if a prisoner were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one overcomes sloth and torpor, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fourth of these hindrances, great king, is restlessness and remorse. Restlessness and remorse is like being a slave. A slave is always busy, but only doing what the master commands, not what the slave wants. The master says, go there, do that, come here, do this. It's the same with restlessness and remorse. One sits down to meditate and one's body can't get settled. One's mind is all over the place. One is regretting things done in the past not doing what one wants to do on the spiritual path. But if a slave were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome restlessness and remorse, one rejoices and becomes glad. 
The fifth of these hindrances, great king, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is like being on a perilous desert journey where bandits abound and provisions are scarce. First one thinks to go this way, but no, wait, there won't be any water. Better to go this way, but no, they're going to be bandits. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. It's the same with skeptical doubt. First one tries this practice, but no, doesn't seem right, tries that practice. There's more starting and stopping and no progress actually being made. But if someone on a perilous desert journey were to arrive at a place of safety, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome skeptical doubt, one rejoices and becomes glad. Great King, when one sees that these five hindrances are not abandoned, one regards that as being in debt, as being physically ill, as being in prison, as being a slave, as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thinking and examining and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. <coughs> Great King, think of a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice, taking a metal basin and pouring in just the right amount of soap flakes and then just the right amount of water and mixing the soap flakes and the water until it becomes one homogeneous ball of soap that does not trickle. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King. This is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Furthermore, great king, with the subsiding of thinking and examining, by, remaining by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which is without thinking and examining, and contains rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration so that there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, imagine a lake far up in the mountains. No streams coming in from the east, the west, the north or the south. Not even any showers of rain. And yet at the bottom of the lake, there's a spring of cool, clear water. The cool, clear water from the spring would totally fill the lake, totally saturate every bit of that lake with the cool, clear water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. For the great king, with the fading away of rapture, and by gaining inner tranquility, and by gaining uh, mindfulness, clear comprehension, and equanimity, one enters and remains in the third jhana. One experiences happiness with the body. The third jhana is a state where the noble ones describe it as one who is equanimous and happy. One drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses one's body with this happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great King, imagine a lotus pond where there are lotuses who come up out of the mud but not above the surface of the water. They would lead their whole lives underwater filled with water from their tips to their roots. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. 
great king. This too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the passing of pleasure and pain and with the previous passing of joy and grief, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with the pure bright mind so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure bright mind. Great King, imagine a man covered from the head down by a white cloth so that there is no part of his body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with the pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one inclines and directs one's mind to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, made of material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Great King, insights into the nature of reality such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one can direct it and incline it to the various psychic powers. One can create a mind-made body. One can perform supernormal feats like being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one, appearing and disappearing at will, walking on water as though it is earth, diving into earth as though it is water, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying cross-legged through the sky like a bird, wielding mastery over the body as far as the Brahma realms. One can also hear sounds at a great distance. One can know the minds of others. One can remember past lives. One can see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Great King, psychic powers such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Furthermore, great king with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one can direct and incline it to the ending of the asavas, the intoxicants. One can understand this is dukkha. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is a path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. One can understand these are the asavas, the intoxicants. This is the origin of the asavas. This is the cessation of the asavas. This is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of the asavas. And one can follow that path all the way to the end and make an end of the asava of sense desire, the asava of ignorance, the asava of becoming. And in so doing, great king, one makes an end of all dukkha. This too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. And furthermore, great king, there is no fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than this. The king was impressed. Wonderful, marvelous. It's like setting up right something that's been knocked down. It's like pointing out the way to one who is lost. It's like bringing a lamp into a dark room so that those who have eyes can see. I go for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to the Bhikkhu Sangha.
May the Buddha please consider me a lay follower from this day forth. And King Adityasattu got all shamefaced. And finally he blurted out, Venerable Sir, a transgression overcame me in that I killed my father, a just and righteous man, for the sake of rulership. Indeed, great king, a transgression overcame you in that you killed your father, a just and righteous man. But it is good that you admit this transgression for the sake of your restraint in the future. And then King Atatatu said, we must be going. We have many things to do. Do as you see fit, great king. So the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the company of monks, circumambulated the Buddha, and then keeping the Buddha on his right, he and Jivaka and all the women of the court went back to where the elephants were parked, mounted up, and rode back to the palace. And not long after the king had left, the Buddha said to the monks, This king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. If he had not killed his father, a righteous man and a righteous king, the stainless eye of Dhamma would have been open in him tonight and he would have attained the first level of awakening. But this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. And the monks were very pleased with all that the Buddha taught. Now the sutta ends here. But the commentaries go on to say that King Adityasattu went back to his palace and had his first good night's sleep since his father died. And indeed, he did become a great protector of the Dhamma. After the Buddha's death, there was a council of Arahants, the first great council, and it was held just outside the city of Rajagaha. Obviously, the 500 Arahants who came together felt that they were under the protection of King Ajitasattu. But remember, King Ajitasattu was a very ambitious man. After the Buddha's death, he set out on wars of conquest and conquered all of the neighboring kingdoms and republics and built the nucleus of the first great Indian empire. But not all went well for King Ajitasattu because you see, his son killed him. And his grandson killed his son. And his great-grandson killed his grandson. And his great-great-grandson killed his great-grandson. And at that point, the people of Magadha said, enough of these father killers. They killed the last of the line and installed a new dynasty. Any questions? <laughs> All right. So, this illustrates the gradual training. Hopefully everyone was paying attention and memorized the bits and pieces, but I'll go over them. All right, hearing the Dhamma, gaining faith, going forth, keeping the precepts, guarding the senses, being mindful, content with little, abandoning the hindrances, Practicing the jhanas, gaining insight into the nature of reality. The supernormal powers are optional, okay, so you don't have to worry about that. Overcoming the asavas, the intoxicants, is the same as fully waking up, all right? So these are the things that are part of the curriculum. And for the rest of today, I'm going to talk about each of them in detail, but I thought there might be some questions or comments about the sutta. Okay, we got some back up here. Wow, I didn't expect to be completely enthralled in a play. <laughs> Um, it was really enchanting. Um, there is one point where I got lost. Okay. I wanted some clarification. Um, when the king heard the, the, all the discourse from the Buddha, I thought I heard you say, um, please take me as one of your followers. 
Yes. But I, I, I would like to be a lay follower. Yes. But then he left. Mm-hmm. And he said a lay follower. A lay follower. Yeah. So, so not a bhikkhu. Okay. But a, a lay person like all of us. Okay. I can look around and I see a few people that don't have much hair, but nobody's wearing an orange robe. So lay so, people. So he went back to his palace and then he still practiced everything that the Buddha was, was saying. No. No, he probably didn't practice much of what the Buddha was saying. Oh. He just believed that the Buddha had the real answers and he was devoted. So he had devotion as his practice, but he didn't practice jhanas or insight or any of this, most likely. Oh, okay. So he, he believed the Buddha was telling the truth. He believed that the Buddha was teaching the monks something that was very valuable, But he wasn't so interested in doing the practice. He wanted to conquer the neighboring kingdom. So he spent all of his time on warfare. But so what did for him being a lay follower meant? Well, it meant that he was devoted to the Buddha. And he gave alms food to the Buddha. When the monks came on alms round in the city, he ensured that they got plenty to eat. Uh, He probably, if they were at Jivaka's mango grove, if there needed to be repairs done, he would send his carpenters out, things like that. So he supported mm -hmm. the Buddha's teaching. Um, basically, he gave dana, but since the monks couldn't handle gold or silver, he gave it in terms of food and lodgings and maybe robes, things like that. Mm. And was it long later that his son killed him? Yeah, it was quite a bit later. Um, The Buddha died probably, the scholars are saying this sutta took place probably in the last five years of the Buddha's life. So King Ajatasattu was a follower of the Buddha in person for five years. And then after the Buddha died, very shortly thereafter, he started his wars. He knew the Buddha wouldn't be approving of him going oh. and killing a lot of people. So after the Buddha died, he started conquering the neighboring kingdoms. First, he went north across the Ganges River and conquered that republic. And then he conquered the other major kingdom of Kosala. So it was probably after this five years till the Buddha died and maybe another ten years and then his son killed him. Remember his son was born about the same time. So his son was probably a baby. Probably a very fussy and noisy baby, right? He wants his son to experience peace. So his son has to grow up. So maybe 20 years after the sutta his son killed him. But we don't know. Well, thank you. Right. This was Can you pass the mic over this way? Um, did, when the Buddha addressed the monks and nuns after the king had left and said, um, the king's life is over, was he <laughs> perceiving... Um, the king's future as, as an invader, or was it because the king had killed his father, that that was, that was the karma that was going to follow him through life. And if you're a, if you're a father killer, there, there is no redemption. Right. So the tradition at the time of the Buddha was that there were five heinous crimes. If you ever did one of these, you punched your ticket to hell. Killing your mother, killing your father, attempting to kill a Buddha, killing an arhat, or creating a schism in the Sangha. And poor old Ajatasattu had, kicked, had punched his ticket by killing his father. Now, I would actually interpret this as saying that the Buddha recognized that Ajatasattu wasn't interested in the spiritual path for himself personally. Okay, he, he could be a supporter, he could have devotion, but he wasn't about to practice. That was just like too boring. Okay, so the Buddha recognized that this guy is so power hungry, he killed his father. He's not going to practice and become a stream enterer. He didn't get the, the essence of what was being taught to him. But he got enough so that he at least became a devoted follower. And now you've got to remember, there were 500 women of the court. So now did any of them get it? Did any of them become nuns? We don't know. But often the Buddha would determine that, okay, I'm going to give this talk to this person, but that person over there is going to be the one that benefits. So 
giving the talk may have resulted in stream entry for some of the women of the court. But Ajitasattu wasn't interested in the, in the spiritual path. And although he was devoted to the Buddha, mm -hmm. yeah, he, he had punched his ticket to yeah, another life. Thank you. Right, in, just in front of you. Um, I had a question regarding um, Vipassana or insight, which I imagine when it says insight into the nature of reality, that's mm -hmm. what we're talking about. And uh, I, it kind of fits into an, an interest that has perked up for me in the last couple of weeks about Vipassana and trying to ensure that I have a correct understanding um, and how it's relevant to my practice. Mm -hmm. And mostly I've really been focusing on developing sati in my own personal practice, but um, it also has occurred to me that having a correct understanding, the right understanding of my personal circumstances, the things I find challenging, does require vipassana. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that insight into the nature of reality comes after being able to enter a state of jhana or samadhi, Right, yeah, because you've got a mind that's well prepared to see what's going on. Yeah, so by leaving alone the, the, the insight into the nature of reality, the cosmos, the body, and the consciousness, and all mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, I, I find it a little curious that insight into one's own whatever issues mm -hmm. <laughs> does not, is not part of this list. Is that right? Yeah. Um, what What is your general comments on? Yeah. So, insight is aimed at helping you see what's actually happening in sight. Okay. And the arenas to investigate are the impermanent nature of phenomena, the unsatisfactory nature of phenomena. And the, well, it's usually given as not self, but I think maybe it's a little more understandable, is the empty nature of phenomena, that everything arises dependent on other things. So these are the three, these are the three areas we want to gain insight into. Now, it turns out it's sometimes hard to gain those insights until you gain insights into some of your own personal stuff. The personal stuff is never addressed in the suttas, okay? I don't know whether that's because people 2,500 years ago were much more well-adjusted than 21st century Westerners. <laughs> I mean, remember, it was a definitely a different culture. Um, but um, it is something that, as a practical matter for us, yeah, we need to take a look at, yeah, what's going on with us. I was uh, talking with Steve last night, and I was saying, yeah, what's actually happening, there's a bunch of undergrowth that's here that's blocking your view of the deeper insights into Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. You've got to clear away that undergrowth, but that's only preliminary practice. The real practice, as the Buddha said, is to investigate body and mind, in particular in terms of their impermanent nature, the fact that they're the source of Dukkha, and the fact that, yeah, everything is arising dependent on other things, which is what basically the, the, the paragraph on insight is all about. So, yeah, it's fine to clear away all of the underbrush, you know, all the craziness that we inherit for being 21st century Westerners. It's probably necessary to do that, but that's only a preliminary step. Okay, so here and then across. Um, um, whenever I hear um, these teachings about um, a, a, a lay person saying, okay, I'm going to go and, and follow the Buddha, and, and at the same time, the teaching of non-harming, I mean, if this is a, a man with a wife and children, and he decides to go off and shave his beard and do all of that, he leaves behind a woman who has no way to support herself and children who are now orphans. So I don't understand that. Yeah. I don't understand that at all because to me that's the, the basic harming of his family. 
Right. So some of the things to, to keep in mind. Um, it was a different culture. All right. There were different support systems available. All right. So that's one thing. We're trying to interpret this in light of Western culture, and it was different there. So when someone got left, there perhaps was other support for the wife and, and the kids and so forth. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so in Mexico, a village, small village, um, there's a, an older man who has a son who's married and has a child, and the two of them have a child. And a disease comes to the village, and a lot of people are sick, right? And this, the young man is he's quite brilliant, but he, he, he doesn't know how to solve the disease or anything. So he leaves his wife and family. He, he leaves them with his father, who can sort of care for them. And he sneaks over the border, and he comes to California. And, of course, he picks lettuce at first. But he's a sharp guy, and he eventually works his way up to where he goes to medical school. And he learns about the disease, and then he goes back, and he actually manages to cure his wife and cure his son. And although he can't cure his father, he actually helps his father have a much better life. He's also helpful to a lot of other people in the village. Now, was it an evil thing that he left his wife and kid? Right, so you can take exactly what the Buddha did, translate it to a different setting, and yeah. So yeah, if someone were to leave their family in dire straits by going off, that's not really a good thing. But if you look at most of the people who joined the order, they tended to be young men who had not married, or they tended to be older men who had already raised their family. Or they tended to come from uh, some other spiritual tradition, meaning they'd already left under some other circumstances. So it's a little tricky to try and translate from our culture and what it would mean into India 2,500 years ago. So, right, and the wife and children would have a different attitude towards leaving. So, yeah, you're right. Doing it today, you know, somebody who's... <laughs> He's got a wife and a couple of kids, and it's like, well, I'm going to go seek my spiritual fortune. Good luck. Yeah, that's causing harm. So that's the best I can do for you. So if you pass the mic all the way across. Yes. Hi there. Uh, first of all, thank you for speaking here. Right concentration was phenomenal. Um, I think it's, I think it's pretty, pretty standard, commonly known that jhana practice was, was, it was commonplace around the Buddha's time. Um, he studied with Kalama and, and a few others, and had, I think practiced through the Arupa jhanas mm -hmm. uh, in advance. Which of the things in the list of fruits of spiritual practice were strikingly new? The relationship between the jhanas and insight practice. Okay, most everybody who practiced jhanas at the time of the Buddha took the jhana experience as the ultimate. I mean, when you're in fourth jhana, you don't have any dukkha, right? So, yeah, you've, you've arrived. The Buddha goes, no, man, when you come out of fourth jhana or seventh jhana or whatever, all the dukkha is still here. This isn't the answer. His taking the jhanas as a skillful means, not as an end, and applying the concentrated mind to an investigation of reality was what was strikingly new there. Going forth is different from the householder life. Is the set of fruits that you've spelled out here, that he spelled out, available to householders? Yeah. Are all of the fruits of the spiritual life available for householders who you have to become a monk or not? Well, certainly... The jhanas are available to householders. Okay, so that's four of the fruits. Insight into the nature of reality is certainly available to householders. I'm hoping all of you have managed to get some insight. You know, that's probably a fairly reasonable assumption or you wouldn't have showed up here today. Okay, so the insight is available. 
as I said, the supernormal powers are optional. Um, I'll talk about them in some detail this afternoon. Um, so I'll just defer that part. Full awakening. Is full awakening available to householders? Well, there were a few householders at the time of the Buddha who became fully awakened. So it would seem. However, I would say that it's probably going to be really difficult if you're working 40 hours a week and trying to keep up with Game of Thrones. <laughs> right? You're probably going to need a lifestyle that you know, supports, if not full-time spiritual practice, but at least a, a lot of spiritual practice. It's really interesting in talking with people who have retired and retire to really working on spiritual practice, how quickly they advance compared to all the years they put in before. So is full awakening available for householders? I'm going to say yes. And if you don't get there, your life is still going to be better for having tried to get there. Uh, well, maybe you're going to address this this afternoon, but um, I, I don't believe that people can pass through walls and swim through the earth and, and all that kind of thing. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't believe that um, a great teacher, a great spiritual teacher like, like the Buddha would lie about that. So how do I reconcile yeah, fact, you'll have you'll have to wait till after okay. lunch for the reconciliation. <laughs> but yeah, you're exactly right to raise this issue. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's uh, eleven fifteen. I figure we go to lunch in about an hour. Does that sound reasonable to people? And so I'm not going to take a break. All right. You need to go pee or something. You're just going to have to go. All right. And I'm just going to start discussing these various things that are taught here and give you a little more detail about them. Okay? <laughs>